KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast, featuring in-depth, one-on-one interviews with mission-driven entrepreneurs, renowned thought leaders and game changers committed to ideas, innovation, and getting the heck out of the building. Our radio show and podcast eliminates the struggle, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes game changers bring to industries, organizations, and lives. Hosted by Tom DiOro, principal of Accurate, and retired Colonel Pete Newell, CEO of BMNT. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, please welcome Anne-Marie Craig, CEO and co-founder of Commit. Anne served as a civil servant deploying around the world in direct strategic and operational support to the interagency. In 2010, after having her second child, she left government and founded Maximi LLC, a consulting business aimed at relationship navigation, strategy development, and research. Her clients included Deloitte and General Dynamics. Anne Marie feels blessed to have not just served at the tip of the spear, but also to have married into it. She believes it provides her a unique understanding for the work she currently does at Commit. Anne-Marie is gifted at connecting dots and creating serendipity for our veterans and works to grow the enduring relationships necessary to enable real success. Insists on the National Board of Directors for Bunker Labs and for the Board of Advisors for Promote Leadership. She holds a Master of Arts from Middlebury College and a BA from Wolford College. She hails from the Deep South, (laughs) but now calls Boozman, Montana home. She and her husband continue their own transition, growing the family and raising three awesome kids. For more information, you can visit www.commitfoundation.org. Again, www.commitfoundation.org. Hi, Ann. Hi. Hi, Ann. Great introduction, Pete. That was a very uh, That was a mouthful. I have to tell you, being a girl from the South, I do go by both names. It's Ian Marie. And I will try and keep remembering that as I go through this. Because my, my Southern-raised wife would be slapping me in the back of the head right now for, for a bit of the second one. <laughs> All right. I so, go for it, and I believe that. <laughs> now that we're done laughing at me, <laughs> just to start off, can you think of anything humorous that's happened this week or around Boozman, Montana, that, that you want to lob into the, the discussion up front? Well, it's Bozeman, Montana, but I think the fact that you call it Boozman, Montana, like you said, it could, it could add to some humor <laughs> of our town. Um, really, what has happened here that's been funny this week? I guess... You know, just new for me this week is I dropped my oldest child off for a spend the night camp for the first time. And I snuck his gizmo watch into his bag, even though he's supposed to not have any technology. And he hasn't called me once. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm sort of, I'm not a helicopter mom, but my husband's laughing at me. And he tells me it's great training for seven years from now when he goes off to college. But I'm really surprised I haven't heard from my son. I had to have him done. But, yeah. <laughs> that qualifies as funny, for sure. Yeah, no okay. kidding. <laughs> so, you know, I occasionally get caught up in the, you know, in my company, there's a, 
pretty good gap between the you know the original four partners in terms of where our kids are, and we have everything from you know 28 years old captain in the army down to you know 11 months old and, and one of everything in between. And you know we get these conversations about the change in parenting based on the technology that's available today. <laughs> and and as my youngest son will attest, or the oldest one will look at the youngest one and say, man, you got a maid. And the youngest says, what do you mean I got a maid? Mom and dad know where I'm at all the time. You got away with murder. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I know. Yeah. That's true. And share with us your, you know, commit. I, I actually, it's one of my favorite words is commit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So as Joe mentioned in the beginning, I was really blessed to serve in the intelligence community. I left a doctoral program when 9-11 happened to join the national security sector. And as I served and deployed with the military, I watched a lot of folks as they approached their transition default to either careers in government or careers in defense contracting when they actually wanted to do other things. And they just weren't quite sure how to get there. They had gaps in information, not understanding how their skill sets transferred. They had gaps in confidence, no matter, you know, what barrel-chested operator they had been in uniform. (laughs) And they often probably, you know, had the biggest gap in imagination. And I saw these men and women not breaking off the barriers and really broadening the aperture to understand the host of possible when it came to life after uniform. And so I wrote a white paper on it and shared it with a friend, and we decided to start the organization together in 2012. And our mission was to create serendipity for post-9-11 veterans and ensure that they have purpose, both personally and professionally, after their time in uniform. So we started it in 2012 and just never in my wildest dreams that I think it would be where it is uh, this year in its eighth year. Yeah. When you say in, in your wildest dreams, you definitely envisioned you know, how you can help. And I noticed another key word that you, you're called a connector. I don't know if that's a phrase mm-hmm. you coined or if others just kind of see you as, as a connector to, uh, you know, to create that serendipity. Can you share with us how you have that gift? I call it a gift. Yeah, well, you know, I will give a little bit of credit to just having been raised in the South. I think that you learn how to handle social situations and you're just out there a good bit. So I think connecting with people has been something that I've always done well. But, you know, I I sort of laugh and say I was a targeter in the intelligence community and I used to hunt bad guys and now I hunt good guys. And the skill sets are very transferable. My coaches tell me that I create vortexes of serendipity, hmm. and and that's another way of saying you know of being a connector. And I really enjoy getting to know people, meeting them where they are, and building the right network and resources around them to help them achieve their dreams. And I think you know as we scaled the organization over the past seven years, learning, and particularly we're in the middle of this right now, really learning how much of that can be automated so that you can actually achieve scale um, without losing that personal touch. So it's a lot of fun. I I really enjoy empowering people and and certainly empowering the 1% that serves our country and enables us to live the lives we do. You know, I've got this visual of a storm building and gathering and gathering and gathering. And, you know, I you know, kind of grew up on the plains in Kansas and, and slowly watching those those clouds start to spin. 
and eventually you see a funnel, and every once in a while that funnel whacks the ground. <laughs> and it's that vortex thing, but when it hits, it's powerful. It but is. all the other time is about building power and building it up. And so I, having having watched Emory a few times, and and actually having having watched Commit build over the last few years, that that's not a bad analogy for what they've been able to do. Mm-hmm. Can you create that vortex just with the, on your own will? Yeah, you know, it, it sort of gets back to or with why and how I, yeah, why and how I started the organization. You know, I left the government not really wanting to, but both my husband and I were serving, and it wasn't very family conducive, and one of us had to leave, and I was looking for a way to continue to give back, and not only did this feel like something I could dedicate my time and energy to, I was truly living a bad transition of my husband's departure from the military. And I think it sort of gets to the core of the population that we serve, you know, commit very deliberately focuses on post 9-11 veterans that are high performers. And we serve all ranks and all services, but there are a lot of men and women that have served incredible military careers that have, that people assume are going to transition well. And they wear a Cheshire Cat grin, and they show up every day and crush it. But inside, they're sort of falling apart from multiple deployments, loss of friends and family, you know, on the battlefield. And so my husband's transition on paper looks beautiful, and it was horrible at home. And he was very disconnected because he had not stopped to do the assessment of what his values were or are, you know, the type of culture and team that he wanted to be a part of, the type of mission that he wanted to be a part of, all things that are are ones that you're so proud of when you're in uniform about your unit and the camaraderie and the mission. And so I was living it. And so I think, you know, our success over the past seven and a half years and our ability to stay focused on the service member and be authentic to our work really has come from not only my own personal journey, but the folks that we've met along the way and and the folks that we've been able to help along the way. And, and just knowing that it doesn't have to be as difficult as a lot of people have it. You know, I think it's really easy to turn somebody 180 out and set them on a good trajectory, but you have to be able to meet them where they are, you know, understand where they're coming from and really set them up for success in the future. And, and that's what we've done. So it's, the, the programs have come from such an authentic place and they truly have been a journey and testament to my family's transition. And, and again, the families we've met along the way. Yeah. How do you, and this is a very simplistic question. That's all I can ask right now. Is there a formula or approximate formula to transition from, I guess for lack of a better word, just the trauma into a day-to-day civilian life? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think those are two sort of separate questions. I mean, transitioning from the military, I think... You know, we are always, all of us are always going through transition. I think we don't stop and look at it that way, right? But mm-hmm. people transition from different ages to different schools to out of their parents' homes. And, um, sure. but that, that, that commitment to country 
and that commit to serving something greater than yourself and choosing the harder rights over the easier wrongs and really standing up for something. And I would argue, you know, the post 9-11 generation, the men and women that were in high school when 9-11 happened that signed up to serve this country and knew exactly what they were getting into. It's just such a different beast. And the requirements on, you know, placed on them, the responsibilities that they had as platoon leaders and sergeants overseas, you know, it's pretty unparalleled, you know, certainly amongst my generation and my husband's. So, you know, transitioning from that, you know, as far as if there is an equation or, you know, a formula for it, you know, what we believe that you should do is take an operational pause, take a tactical pause, something that we talk about in the military, not trying to rush into the next thing, which is hard because when you're serving in uniform, you always know what your next assignment is. You always know how to get to the next place you're going. Everything is pretty predetermined. And, and you've got a checklist to get there. And, you know, when someone puts a blank canvas in front of you and you get to decide what's in the middle, rather than it just being the mission, that can be a little daunting. And so we set them up with the tools and the resources and, and you know, a, a process that's very agile that helps them stop, take that tactical pause, assess what their values are, which I think all of us, it would serve us to do that, veteran or non-veteran, and really make sure that their values are present in their decision-making moving forward so that when they join an organization, join a team, embrace a mission or product or a program, that they can be proud of it when they come home every day. I truly do the transition work so that when people come home, that their homes are what they need to be because they're so proud of what they're doing for a career from one to five. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and I was just trying to think through my own experiences, but the mechanics of transition, I I think is, you know, if you've been in the military a long time, you think you get it, because quite frankly, you're told to move every two or three years, and you go through the new drill of, where are my kids going to go to school? Where am I going to live? How do I get back and forth to work? You know, everybody's got to make new friends, and, and there's all that stuff that goes around it, but then you hit the nail on the head. You knew where you were going, and you knew what the job was. And from the service member's perspective, that off-ramps a whole lot of stress because you know what day you got to show up to work and, and how you're going to transition to that job. It would be massively different if they just let people go find, you know, what they're going to do. But, I, you know, we had this conversation a lot about um, retirement and the freedom that comes from an opportunity to go out and find your new passion or, or really go back to your roots and do something completely different and how, you know, it can be a beautiful thing, but how unsettling it is for people to actually have to get into that space. I love the idea of a tactical pause. And I can't tell you how many people that I've, I've had to counsel that, you know, frankly, the first question out of my, out of my mouth is, do you have to have a job and an income the day you transition? But if you don't, my recommendation is don't don't get in a rush. But if you do, then you, you've got some different decisions to make. But, but I, the idea of a tactical pause and taking the opportunity to go reassess your values, not just yours, but the entire family, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. 
And, and, you know, we really, we've worked through so many different approaches. We've always focused on quality over quantity and, and going deep with individuals and, and truly believe that, like, a lot of veteran service organizations mismeasure themselves by how many people they're serving rather than how deeply they are serving them. And so really going deep with folks. And like you said, you know, so the service members that do have families, you know, their units have been their units, and they have to sort of reorient to their family being their unit. There's that saying in the military, it's like, I feel, is it mission first, family always? The, the saying always sort of made me nauseated because I always felt like it was mission first, mission always. And mission is like at the core critical you know, component of everything you do. And even the the spouses prioritize the mission and just respond because the call and the cause is so great. And, and particularly after 9-11, the whole country was moved by it. So, you know, the tactical pause, and then you asked about the mental health and the trauma side. You know, I think mental health is a global epidemic. You know, we have forgotten how to connect one, with one another in so many ways. And we meet people where they are and really have them own their journey because high-performing veterans are very good at compartmentalizing things that have happened to them so that they can move forward with the mission. And um, you can only do that for so long. It will metastasize. The train will come home and arrive at the station at some point. And so really helping people in in a non-invasive, perhaps non-clinical way to own their journey downrange and and work through that in a way that resonates with them is a really important part of the work we do. And most of that work is done through, you know, we all, we have coaches, all of the people that come through our program get executive coaches, but we have tremendous partnerships with folks that understand trauma, brain trauma, um, and really how to, how to work through brain health. Excellent. Thank you. You're listening the Innovators radio show and podcast on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM with Tom Dior and Pete Newell. We are talking today with Anne-Marie Craig, CEO and co-founder of Commit. For more information, please feel free to visit www.commitfoundation.org. So just to change gears a little bit, Anne-Marie, the over an eight-year, eight, nine-year period now with the foundation, what what's changed for you from from the early days of, of yours getting started to where you find yourself today? And you alluded a little bit about looking at, at what automation can do, but are there a couple of significant aha moments over the, over the years that have helped you map the direction of the foundation? Absolutely. So, you know, from a brand perspective, I think we've been able to build a great brand by partnering with great brands. You know, in our first 18 months, you know, Andreessen Horowitz reached out to commit and said, we want to work with you. I didn't even know who they were at the time in my foolish mind, but I was an analyst and did my research and they were a relationship-based firm, not a transactional one, which really resonated with me, you know, and then the following year, Stanford Business School reached out and asked us to help build the Ignite program for post 9-11 vets and, and then Guggenheim Partners reached out and we built a veteran pr- transition program for them. So over the years, 
is understanding the importance of brand while you build your brand. You know, one of my big aha moments was I realized that as long as my programs were creating value, that I would be able to find people to fund them. So that that was a beautiful moment in, in building the organization. At the beginning of last year, we got our largest investment, and the intent was to scale. And, you know, I think scaling in the nonprofit world, particularly when the drum that you beat as an organization is that quality of service matters more than quantity served, that can be a little daunting. And so, you know, as we scale and and we tripled our number served last year, but as we continue to do that, you know, making sure we match the internal capability with what we're, you know, putting out, making sure that we are not diluting the quality of our service with the more numbers that we serve. And, you know, for me, what's sort of crazy is, you know, I used to know every single person that came through the program. I knew who they were. I knew where they served. I knew what their family was. I knew what they wanted to do. And it was awesome. And now I spend most of my time, you know, raising money for other people to do the work. So I'm sure so many founders go through that, you know, cycle. And, you know, probably, you know, one of the most daunting things that, you know, happened to me this year. And, and, and Tita, I mentioned this at the beginning of our call. You know, I truly feel like I'm starting to experience what founders of businesses do. And, and, you know, for the first time in the organization's history, you know, I feel weight on my shoulders and it's because I've got a team and, you know, I've grown an idea into, you know, a team of nine and a $3 million operating budget. And we're getting a lot of pressure to continue to scale. And so it's exciting, but I've never thought about my life in quarterly chunks until now and really matching revenue with programming. <laughs> and, um, you know, these are all uh, things that entrepreneurs, particularly those of us yeah. who didn't go to business school have to learn. But again, I think we are where we are because we are authentic to the veteran and we are authentic to our approach and that, you know, we don't let mission creep happen. We don't chase dollars. I mean, I can't tell you how many checks I've walked away from because it didn't resonate with me from a program programmatic standpoint. So I think we've done a really good job of staying true to our mission and delivering and, you know, continuing to do that in the midst of this, of this, for us to scale is going to be really important. We've got a lot of guys out in the Valley that are advisors to us. And a lot of them are in tier one private equity firms and they scale for a living. And so, you know, when they're coming at you and telling you scale, scale, and if you do this, I'm going to ask you why you can't double it next year. You know, I have to realize where they're coming from and certainly where I'm coming from and, and try to meet at the right place for our service members. But yeah, I mean, it's it's been a fun ride, but I will tell you, like this year, it feels really real for me. I almost every entrepreneur we talk to, and a personally that I do, has kind of the same story about them giving up the reins to other people to do the work that that needs to be done by other folks, so you can focus on the the strategic side of things. But you know, the unfortunate byproduct of that is you often also give up the opportunity to engage with the people you're serving, and. And as my wife would say, you know, your your sense of accomplishment has to be greater than your sense of frustration. But and I, <laughs> I found that that the further away from you know the direct contact with with the people I was serving and doing with, the fewer opportunities I had to you know hit my sense of nirvana and get that great feedback from people that that re re energized me. 
Do you deal with that? Absolutely. And, you know, a couple of things come to mind. I recently met with a mentor two weeks ago in New York and sort of shared with her the way I was feeling. And she gave me this counsel, and I think it's great counsel for founders. She said, you need to carve at least 10% of your time out to do the work to build this organization for so many reasons, because clearly it fills your cup. It's why the organization is where it is, but you just hit the nail on the head. Like you can't separate yourself from the end user. You really do a disservice to the entire organization. If I spend all my time trying to fundraise and I can't even articulate, you know, what we're delivering. But I think, you know, we risk burnout by just focusing on the strategy and the, you know, quarterly revenue and, and, and we've got to be in touch with the product. And we have, and, and so I was blessed and, 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 and elated to hear her tell me that. A few years ago, I remember my husband telling me that if I wanted to talk to veterans, that I needed to hire someone else to run the organization because we were clearly at a turning point where my responsibilities were going to change. I am blessed to have an incredible team, an incredible uh, bench of service providers. So I am honored to be able to raise the dollars and build the strategy that empowers them to deliver the work. But I am going to focus this year moving forward and into next on making sure that I'm touching the product because it really is what, what makes me happy. And it's how I've always found my north in the middle of a very crowded space is by hopping on the phone with one of the men and women that we're trying to help. Excellent. I'll go back to I'll touch on, uh, you said many great uh, quotes and you even have axioms, um, is a commitment to country. Can you share what that means to you and to the organization? Wow. Yeah. So I, I was doing a doctoral program in romance languages when 9-11 happened. I did not know anyone in the towers. I did not lose anyone that day. But I literally didn't sleep for like a month and was just really disturbed and told my parents I wanted to join the military. And they were like, you're not leaving a doctoral program to join the military. So I ended up applying across the intelligence community and started to get a few bites moved to D.C. and was really blessed to serve for eight years in a civilian capacity. I feel honored to have had the privilege to serve under one of the greatest leaders I think I've uh, found, which is General Stanley McChrystal. And both in the government and outside of the government, I got to work with him and, and for him. And, you know, all of it's just set an example and a standard for you know, a life of service. And really, as you go to other parts of the world and see how blessed we are and the freedoms that we have, it just seemed foolish of me when I left the government not to find a way to reinvest those individuals back into the fabric of our country. And so I felt like I got to scratch my national security itch both as a, you know, a mom of three that had to step away from active service, if you will, by serving this way and really ensuring that these men and women come home and land and expand the way that they should. 
So it's very personal for me, and I'm honored to play a small role. And I know our team is honored to play a small role in the transition of these men and women. And, and so as an organization, we really we really live that deeply. We're made up of a lot of veterans and veteran spouses and, and certainly a group of patriots that wants to give back now that they're not in you know official active service capacity. So I'm going to flash forward. We're halfway through 2019. You know, for you, what what are your plans over the next, you know, two, three years with Commit? I mean, obviously wow. things are changing as, as some of the, i say the battles wear down, but the world gets more complex and, you know, the ultimate role of transition probably doesn't go away. But, but interestingly for you, what what's that look like? Yeah, so we're actually getting ready to rally everyone from our advisors and board and team here in Bozeman in July to focus on our three-year growth strategy because we're wrapping one up right now, a three-year period, and continuing to define how we have that quality over quantity approach in the work that we do. So in an ideal world, you know, commit can say that we serve the top 1% that separates from the military every year in a very thoughtful way. And what, you know, I would really like us to do as an organization is to share more lessons learned and more thought leadership across the veteran service space. I was really blessed last year to participate in the George W. Bush's Presidential Center's first stand to leadership program that was for veterans or people that were focused on the veteran space. And my whole project at the six month program was around changing the narrative from quality of, you know, for, for quality over quantity in the space. And so moving forward, I want to continue, we will continue to scale our numbers. We have built a piece of software that just wrapped up its pilot this week that we will launch in July in beta. We do believe we'll be able to serve more people in a virtual environment, still with a very qualitative approach with our coaches. So we will grow our numbers, but I'd like to see us be sharing more. And, you know, there's a great piece that got put out in the Stanford Social Innovation Review in 2015 called What's Your Endgame? And I highly recommend it uh, to folks. But, you know, they talk about how scale isn't always the right way to go and how how you continue to how you could potentially affect the space by the work that you do do and and I, I think commit's approach has been missing in the veteran service space that quality over quantity approach I think we're starting to see more people talk about it for different reasons and I think the more that we as an organization can share our models and programming in order to move the needle in the space you know that's really what I envision so this this virtual, you know, presence that will enable us to serve more people. And then again, hopefully building some time and space for us to share what we learn. And with that, you know, we have to stay agile. Like you speak to how the force changes. I've seen the force change, you know, 2012 to 2016, a transitioning veteran looks very different than they do in 2019 because operational requirements have changed downrange. And so I think making sure that we as a boutique organization sort of maintain that being elite without being elitist and really being agile and really ensuring that we are sharing, capturing, 
what works and spreading it across the space and hopefully helping other organizations do their work better. Excellent. We're going to go up station uh, break for a second here, Anne-Marie. This is the Innovators Radio Show and podcast on KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM. Kickstart is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to lift millions of people in Africa out of poverty quickly, cost-effectively, and sustainably. Co-founded by Stanford alumnus Dr. Martin Fisher, Kickstart designs, promotes, and markets simple money-making tools that smallholder farmers buy and use to start profitable family enterprises. You can help families permanently change their lives by contributing to Kickstart. For more information, visit kickstart.org. We're talking today with Anne Marie Craig, CEO and co-founder of Commit. For more information, you can visit commitfoundation.org. Again, commitfoundation.org. Pete, go ahead before uh, so, the break. So, Anne Marie, I was going to, right before we took a quick break there, I, I was going to go back to the strategy decision of what I think I heard you say was a decision of whether to scale by going deeper, which means get better at delivering the service and products to that top 1% versus scale as in go to the 2%, the 3% or the 5% in terms of width. And it, it sounds like you're like in the middle there someplace where you're not gonna give up the core of really dedicated service to the top 1% of transitioning service members. But you've also found that the collateral you have built up over the years and the knowledge you have represents something really valuable to a much wider group. Did I get that right? You got it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, we have after seven years of, or actually it was after six years where we had been putting these incredible programs on all over the country. We focus on small groups to create intimate environments where quality dialogue happens. You know, you walk out, and it was amazing, but, like, only 30 people were present for it. And so how would we capture that and take that to the next level? So moving forward, you will start to see a very robust digital library where we are interviewing our mentors. People are able to curate mentoring sessions and around topics and industries that they want to explore that hopefully help them make more informed decisions. So whether it's about running an ethical business or, you know, choosing which tech company in the Valley or, you know, what's the difference in management consulting, you know, in, 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 in another industry, people are able going to be able to you know, benefit from our mentors and we in a virtual format. And we knew that had to be special. You know, our first go at our online platform, we actually used someone else's software and it wasn't right. We didn't own it. We couldn't change it. The UI UX was horrible. And so we ended up building our own program over the past six months. And again, the pilots are up and up this week. We have built something incredible. I'm really excited about launching it in July and seeing how many more people we can approach affect in their transition. But like you said, I think we will probably tear out services and really ensure that everybody, you know, that sort of rises to the top is, is prepared to deal with the level of service that we give them. Because when people are willing to stop and invest in themselves, you know, it's, it's sort of unstoppable what we can do with them. Wow. So I, I'm going to ask this this way, and, and you can answer it in the correct way, but 
you've been focused on the top 1%. And, you know, obviously the, the challenge with startups and building a business, as you know, is, is finding the right team and eventually attracting the right talent and then, quite frankly, keeping them. And, you know, from my experience with Commit and then our interactions, you've been fantastic at finding talent that other people need. So, so let me ask you, how do you find the 1%? So on the internally to the business or externally? Yeah, you have the freedom to answer that in the, in the correct yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, you know, as far as the people we serve, we serve all ranks, all services. And originally it started out very organically. I was coming out of the special operations community. My co-founder was coming out of the intelligence community and had a service academy background. And so, you know, our population originally was pretty special operations heavy. But, you know, we do serve all services in all ranks, and it has been a very much a referral-based program. All of our programs get booked well in advance. We have thought about partnerships in order to grow those numbers, and we realize that not everybody has a positive psychology approach to transition the way we do. And so we've learned that finding that, finding the right people to come through our program is better suited when we create more unit awareness. So whenever we're at near a base, you know, we'll seek out the units that we think align with the men and women that we want to serve. You know, internally, at keeping at finding good talent and keeping good talent. Like, you know, the the nonprofit space is a hard space to be in. I think when you're trying to raise money, and you know, you can't offer equity in your company when you're trying to get someone to come in. You know, <laughs> your your funding and and the people you serve. You've got, you know, the people that you're generating revenue from are not the same people that are using your product. I mean, there's all kinds of things. The nonprofit space gets a little tricky. But, like, we've been able, I learned very early on to run my nonprofit like a for-profit and, you know, gather data, be able to speak to metrics. When it comes to talent, like, you know, you can't hold on to people for, unless, I think, I mean, good people, unless you're paying them six figures. I mean, there's just something about six figures, and it can be exactly 100 grand. But there's just something about, like, getting there and somebody being able to say that. And, you know, I think about, like, I, I certainly read a lot. And, like, one of my favorite books that, you know, I've read since I started this was Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And I love she talks about her co-author, Russ, and how he empowered his team at Google. And she talked about he would have three meetings with his employees. He would have a meeting to get to know them, and then he'd meet with them to understand what their dreams are and get to know their dreams. And then the third meeting was what was he going to do for them and what was the company going to do for them to help them achieve their dreams. And, like, with our staff, not only do I want to pay them well and provide them autonomy in an environment where they continuously feel like they're professionally developing, which is critical to job satisfaction, you know, I want them to know that I'm invested in, in them. And I think it's really you – know, I'm big on the culture that I'm trying to create within the organization as well as the services that we're starting – you know, that we provide. And I think that's been a really cool part about being a founder and, like, growing some an idea into something real and really, you know, again, like 
building a culture that you're proud of. Like, I love the fact that I hire women that have two and three kids so they can participate in being super mom, super wife, and super professional because it's hard. And so, like, just that, that's that been fun and empowering to, like, build a team around things that, I, that are, you know, not only important to me, but definitely important to my employees as well. So, you know, it's interesting you put it that way. Do you feel like... I don't know what the transition of, of automation or connectedness or other things is more enabled folks like that to be more super than they, I mean, it's, it's an opportunity thing. I, I know that, you know, we have a very unique culture at BMNT and, you know, there are no hours and, you know, there's no vacation time. There's no, there's no, when you hire the right people, you, you trust them to do the work and, and the culture kind of carries its own weight with it. But, yeah, I guess you know in the nonprofit world, has that been a an aid to you, or is it a further complication? Well, I, you know, really, I don't think is is that different. And I think that's sort of where nonprofits get in trouble is they like look at themselves differently, or they put themselves in a Absolutely. different box. Yeah. But you know, only seven percent of all nonprofits get over a million dollar operating budget, not just BSO, but all nonprofits. And so once you make that mark or once somebody decides to do a multi-year, multi-million dollar investment in you, like it gets real really fast and you're building something real. And it's a hard, you know, it's a catch 22. It's a hard spot to be in because you have to like validate the social impact value, not like a return on the dollar to investors. But, you know, I don't think it's any different. And I think it really just gets down to, and, and you know this, is picking the right people to be on your team and people that can thrive in that environment. You know, some people need more structure. Another thing that they talk about in Radical Candor is rock stars and uh, superstars. And organizations need both, right? And so it, it definitely gets down into the team you're hiring. But I've heard a lot about your culture at BMNT, and, and there's a lot of similarities as far as hiring the right people and, and letting them do their job and sort of getting out of their way. And I, and I certainly take that approach. Sure. Anne-Marie, how, how uh, would you describe in your experience, or maybe even the literal term of the rock stars and the superstars and kind of put them in kind of in a uh, constellation of stars, if that's possible. Wait, wait, say, ask the question again, how would I do the, what with the, the rock stars? And the, difference, the difference between if, the, if it's large or small of a rock star and a superstar, and then to collectively put them as into a, a constellation of stars and have them all function. Right. Right. Well, that's a successful business, right? (laughs) Like, you know, you have people that want to, like, eventually, you know, move up and have their boss's job and and run the organization. And, And then you have people that are really happy doing what they're doing and, you know, learning how to manage those two different types of people. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, veterans know how to do that. So if we want to get back to, like, the mission of what we do, you know, everybody that joins the military goes to war with what they're given, not with what they select, right? And so, you know, the people we serve are really good at running both rock stars and superstars. But aligning all those people and having everybody row in the same direction and really understand what their quarterly rocks are, and what the, you know, collectively we're moving towards, 
you know, those are things that are both very real, both in the nonprofit and the for-profit world. But I think it takes a while for some sort of good ideas in the nonprofit space to get that sort of mentality. And like the best advice I was given very early on was run your nonprofit like a for-profit. This is just a tax status. That is all it is. That, that's absolutely so true. So, and, and it's a great segment. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say the harder question, but you know, we've we've talked to a lot of nonprofits here, uh, and in fact, ran a, a course at Berkeley called Hacking for Good, which was really based on that. What started the conversation around doing it was in talking to a couple of larger nonprofits here. Somebody finally sat us down and said, "Listen, eighty percent of the money that a nonprofit spends is wasted." And it's not not criminal waste. It's the fact that it was spent and the impact it was intended to have never occurred. And for the most part, it's a lack of feedback mechanisms and, and the lack of business intelligence around what they were going to do. So I, I was going to swing that back to you and ask you about your feedback mechanisms. How do you ensure that you're actually being impactful? And, and getting something back. And then I've got one other you know, related to, you know, what folks are telling you, you know, were there big aha moments that, that they had while they were going through your programs? Yeah, well, so, I mean, like, just the thought of 80% of nonprofit money, like, not being used towards something impactful, like, that just, like, horrifies me, right? I mean, because you get told a lot in the nonprofit space that anywhere from 80 to 85% of your programming has to go to programs. You know, people want to know, like, how much of their dollar goes to actual programs. And as we do our annual accounting, we're really looking to you – know, they throw it into three buckets, right? You've got admin, fundraising, and programming. And, like, last year, commit was 88% programmatic. 6% fundraising and 6% admin. And and the hard thing is it like when you have that sort of bias like placed against your growth, you sometimes aren't able to stop and invest in structures, processes and capabilities that actually enable your organization to get to where it needs to be. You know, every company needs to sort of ebb and flow on that, right? But, like, it, it feels quite often that not only do we get held to a different standard as far as how we actually invest in our internal processes in order to be able to serve better, you know, but you're, and you're constantly, you know, everything in a nonprofit is public, right? We have to file a 990 every year that gets turned into the IRS that gets put on GuideStar, and people can see where you get your money from, what you get paid, what you pay to fundraise. I mean, it's a really interesting position to be in, but I argue that it's probably one of the most, I think is a very empowering way to learn to run a business because you have to be so transparent and you have to be so good at what you do. If, if you, if you get over that million dollar mark and really start to draw attention. So, um, we're constantly getting scrutinized for those numbers, but I mean, we do pay attention to them. They're important to our donors and funders and the longevity and sustainability of our programming. From a feedback loop perspective, you know, we were really blessed that there's a, there's a nonprofit consulting firm that spun out of Bain called uh, Bridgeband, and mm-hmm. we worked with them at the beginning of last year to really think through our surveying, our metrics, and ensure that we were capturing the right data, both pre-programming and post-program to ensure that our programming is meaningful. We have enjoyed a 98% NPS for the past few years. 
um, we see major shifts in people's information confidence and imagination from pre-programs to post-programs. And we measure people's satisfaction with both salary and job. BCG, the the consulting company, actually just did a third-party validation of our programs as well. And so, you know, we do pay attention to all of those feedback loops. You know, how can we get better? You know, certainly not remaining agile, making sure that we understand the end user and continuing to deliver, you know, the best in quality programming. Lately, a lot of people said we've got the best transition program in the country that no one knows about. And, um, you know, I think that that people not knowing about us historically has actually protected us during our growth. And I think we're really poised to deliver now. So it's, it's exciting. Yeah, I, you know, the, the Steve Plank, and I get it a lot of time, is, is Steve beats me sometimes. And he said, you know, there's a big difference between engineering and marketing. <laughs> and he very recently seen, he says, you've got a bunch of people that are phenomenal at engineering, not so much at marketing. And, and it comes right. back to what, what Anne-Marie says about brand is, you know, if, if you've got the best product in the world that nobody knows about, you're, you're not going to be there very long. <laughs> yes, it's a, it, it, is, it is true. Anne-Marie, what else would you like to touch on that we may not have, uh, have touched on in our, uh, your show today that uh, you'd like to share with our audience? I mean, well, I mean, look, I mean, all day long, you know, my uh, director of development and board would fuss at me if I if I didn't say that we're trying to raise capital to continue to deliver our, our funding, as, our programming as we scale. So I have to at least mention that, you know, we're, we're looking to raise some serious funds right now as, as we uh, as we grow. But, you know, as far as innovators and entrepreneurs, you know, I was recently mentoring the spouse of a Navy SEAL wife and um, the Navy SEAL Foundation had asked me to work with her. She's starting a nonprofit to educate families that have foster kids. And at, during one of our calls, she said to me, she's like, it's really nice to know that you have done all this in the midst of raising three kids because I'm looking at doing this part time. And I was wondering if you thought that was possible. And I said, look, I said, the oh, I eat, sleep, and breathe this work. And the only reason this organization is what it is is because I think about it, dream about it, you know, and work at it 24-7. And while I've gotten really good at time management, like, nobody wants to fund somebody in a part-time capacity with a part-time dream and a part-time idea. So, if you know, that. We started this conversation where I said never in my wildest dreams did I think we'd be where we are today. I mean, it has been that passion and and just authentic play to serve the 1% that defends our country that, you know, keeps me going. I have a hard time celebrating the wins. I focus on the hard stuff, and it keeps me focused on our work. And I really think that for people that are trying to build something, really staying true to, you know, what made you build it and that why will will help you be successful. Terrific. Thank you very much. Anne-Marie, it's been an honor and pleasure having you on your show today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. It's really an honor to be here. Oh, thank you again. And thank you, Pete. Um, You've been listening to the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast. Our guest today has been Anne-Marie Craig, CEO and co-founder of Commit, and served as a civil servant deploying around the world in direct strategic and operational support to the interagency. In 2010, after having her second child, she left the government and founded Maximi LLC, a consulting 
business aimed at relationship navigation, strategy development, and research. For more information, feel free to visit commitfoundation.org. Again, commitfoundation.org. Join us again next time when we welcome another mission-driven entrepreneur, thought leader, or game changer committed to smart ideas, innovation, and getting out of the building. And I'm Pete Newell. The Innovators Radio Show and Podcast is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location in California. The recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Jaggi. The executive producer and the host of The Innovators is Tom DiOrio, and yours truly. <laughs> If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. And again, we want to commend our guest, www.commitfoundation.org, helping America's top-tier service members and veterans find personal and professional purpose after military service.